Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, you've confused me now. I was going to call you Matos. I don't Do know. it. Matt, Matos. Um, uh, having done a book on electronic music uh, myself, one, one thing that uh, I noticed over the years... Um, People would email me, and they and they'd have this sort of compulsion to kind of um, tell me tell me their story. You know, all this sort of narrativistic urge of their journey through electronic music, often starting with some kind of conversion experience. Um, and I, I noticed you, you don't actually do that in the book. I, I don't know if that's because it involved chemicals, and you're planning to run for public office at some point in the future. But um, good luck there. <laughs> but um, Will you tell us your story? How did you get sure. into it? Well, I mean, it, it, it wouldn't have been for that reason because I was a straight edge for almost all of the 90s. Um, I No, my first rave was at uh, the Heart of the Beast Puppet Theater in Minneapolis. And I wouldn't exactly call it... Uh, I mean, I don't think of it in retrospect, especially as a real rave because the lights were on. And <laughs> there was, you know, I knew some of the music. And in the 90s, that was kind of a no-no, at least at first. It's like, if you knew any of the tracks, it kind of didn't feel real enough, at least for me as a beginner in that scene. And this was in spring of 99, early spring of 99. Or not, not 99, 93, sorry. Um, uh, but before that, I'd always liked the music. I'd liked it as music. Uh, one kind of key thing when I was 16 is I found a used copy, missing one of the LPs of a 12-LP box set called The History of the House Sound of Chicago, which has two discs of Frankie Knuckles' warehouse favorites and ten discs of pretty much, probably eight discs of ev pretty much every Chicago track from like 86 to 88. The box came out in 88. And so I, I got a pretty thorough introduction to it that way, although you know some of them were edited and shortened or whatever, but I, w I didn't know that at the time. Uh, another key thing was uh, Kevin Cole in Minneapolis was the head DJ at First Avenue, the nightclub, and he's now the He's now the program director and afternoon host at KEXP in Seattle. So it's very different. There aren't that many people in Seattle who would have guessed, frankly, that he ever had a dance music background. Um, but he was really the first person in the Twin Cities, or one of the first people in the Twin Cities to really start playing house music. Um, and he had a night in the 7th Street entry uh, with another DJ named Thomas Spiegel called House Nation Under a Groove. And they'd bring in all the Chicago guys, usually through Spiegel, who really knew a lot of them. He was a total purist. He was a house purist even in 1987, 1988. Like, a garage purist. He Like, if it was techno, it wasn't house, and he didn't like it. <laughs> um, 
so I yeah I had a fairly good education. Minneapolis is also the it was at that time a record distribution capital. There were a lot of distributors. There were a lot of Best Buy, for example, is located. It was headquartered there. So there were a lot of chains headquartered there, like Sam Goody. So there were a, and a lot of music writers come from there. So there were all kinds of. Uh, promo copies floating around. You could find just about anything used, and I started buying compilations pretty early, used compilations. So it was a, it was a kind of vinyl baptism rather than a sort of transfiguring not, experience not on a rave floor somewhere? Uh, well, no. I, I mean, I liked it as music before I ever went out dancing to it, per se. I would go to First Avenue Sunday nights for Sunday night dance party, which is, I think, for a lot of people. I'm 40, so I think for a lot of people my age, this was sort of the alternative soundtrack that you would fairly a fairly standard alternative soundtrack of alt-rock and hip-hop, basically anything that you weren't going to hear on Top 40 radio. Um, and that was a great education, too. Uh, so I was hearing dance music on a dance floor between you know, rock music or between hip-hop or whatever else, uh, ska. And besides that, uh, but going to the Heart of the Beast puppet theater was the first time I really, like, caught that and then I went to I think one other thing that was sort of it was like this is almost a rave this is almost a rave and then when I went to my first real warehouse with my first real flyer and it was just like this is it you know, vaulted ceiling huge uh yeah, a lot of uh projections on the wall and real sound real bass no lights you know, a couple of strobes, a couple of pin spots, and that was it. Some, you know, early IntelliBeams, the kind of the first smart lighting apparatus, well, and that was that was it. That was like, okay, this is this is where I go. So, what kind of people were at this this sort of the first real rave you went to? What was what was the sort of mix? The mix was we left kind of early too. It wasn't like a raging all nighter for me. Uh, you know, we had to go. We had to get back to work the next morning. It was actually with a co-worker. Um, I, worked at a, I worked at a hologram store in a, at the Mall of America. And, which is perfect, actually. It's like prismatic. Um, they had a... They, it, was, it was suburban... It was kids from different suburbs than where I was from. I was from Richfield, Minnesota. And then like it was like, oh, you're all my age and you were all dressed in sort of Stussy and fresh jive, but we're not. But there aren't enough of us in my school to make up a posse. And I think early on it was sort of like that in a lot of different places. It was like, oh wow, I wonder if the kids in Hopkins are like. It's. I would meet people and it'd be like, oh yeah, we got a bunch of our friends. I'd be like, oh man, I wish there were like ten of us in my school. You know, there was like two of us. Were you were you known as the? As the kids who were into this weird music, was that an identity at all at your at your school? Or? Uh, well, yeah. Um, I it's hard it's hard to it's hard to say this without sounding like I'm sort of congratulating myself. But I always liked a lot of music, and I always had fairly strong opinions about it. So I was I mean, and I didn't just like dance music. Of course, I liked all kinds of stuff, but I really liked dance music, and that was always a real heavy staple of it. So that made me unusual for sure because it wasn't that well known at that point. There, mm-hmm. it wasn't you know, it wasn't it wasn't any kind of you're an outcast and you're bad or anything like that. It was just I like different stuff. Right. So, um, you know, writing a book on the history of uh, electronic music uh, 
in North America. In America. Um, oh, okay. There's any number of... Very quickly, I, yeah. I, your original question I forgot I was going to mention. One, one reason I didn't include my conversion experience is because I absolutely refused to, to write this book in the first person. All right. That was a very conscious decision. I, I, it was like there's going to be no first person in this book at all. Why was that? Uh, Partly because it wasn't necessary. I, you know, it's like if I'm interviewing all these people, I should. There's really no reason for me to include myself here, and I knew I wasn't. I knew I wasn't where the action was. I wasn't in the center of things like a lot of the people I talked to. So there was no purpose to it. Um, and also, I had written. I'd written the thirty-three and a third, and it was very first person, and I caught a fair amount of flack for that. And it's funny because I would, you know. I'm a professional journalist, and most of the time I don't write in the first person. And on the very, on the very you'll, few you'll occasions, you'll book on Sign of the Times, right, right? Yeah, and I'd written pieces for anthologies, for example, and those would be first person. People would be like, "All you do is write." No, I do that like once every other year when somebody asks me to contribute an essay to a yeah. book. So I just was like, "I'm not even going to deal with this." Well, that, that's one interesting method, method, methodological approach uh, that you've made a very deliberate choice. The other one I was about to ask you about was, you know, you, there's a number of ways you could write about the history of electronic music. Uh, you could do it sort of genre, logically, like music, how the styles sort of evolve and split up and mutate. Uh, there's drugs, you know, there's a very good book uh, in the UK um, by this writer, Matthew Collin, called Altered State. Great that's book. primarily about ecstasy. It's about the effects of ecstasy on, on British culture. There's you could write about the dancing, uh, sociological study, but your emphasis is very much on the parties and the clubs, and the heroes are, and the protagonists are, the promoters and the DJs primarily. Right. Not s producers to some extent, but really it's the, the people who throw these parties and the people who spin at them. What made you choose that as your angle? Uh, because that's who drove the scene. Uh, and I was looking at it like, okay, I knew you can't really talk about this. Uh, it's you can't really talk about the American scene as a scene without it being about parties because it wasn't like this was pop music in America. It wasn't like this stuff made the charts all that often. It, it wasn't. You couldn't really do that and tell the story correctly. Yeah. Um, to me, it was about the fans too. Uh, it was about the people who drove things, and the people who drove things were the DJs, the promoters, the people who typed about this on message boards after they got home. And that was always really central to what I was trying to do. Uh, years ago, I was being edited by somebody at City Pages in Minneapolis, and he had this, he, he, it was a feature I'd written, and it was actually a feature on, I followed these rave promoters around while they put on a Valentine's Day party for about a month called Love 2, it was in 99, and they were all teenagers, and St. Paul, kind of dead-end kids, really, you know, it was, it, 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 the story turned out, I think, very well, and he, he was like, he left me a message because I had stepped out, and he said, you know, because mostly I was writing criticism, and he was like, you know, I love theory as much as anybody. I love criticism as much as anybody. But sometimes it's really nice to read about people doing things. And it was like yeah. this book from the beginning was about people doing things. Yeah, well, that's, I think that's a very important uh, thing, actually, that dance music journalism could do more of is actual journalism. A lot of it is people pontificating about 
genres and and yeah that was me for you about don't get any years. sense in a lot of music dance music writing now that it's actually about people dancing on a dance floor you right. don't get people to, no one goes and describes how people are moving which is is the you know is the the main meaning of the music is the weird things people do with their bodies to these rhythms well i, I i'm laughing because i'm remembering I moved to Seattle in 1999, and one of the first pieces I wrote at Seattle Weekly where I was on staff was a, I wrote a profile of a local raver named Groovin Kim, who was be- kind of a famous raver on the internet and elsewhere, and she was a, she's a great dancer. So I was like, well, I'm writing about a dancer. I, should desc- I, I was at, with her at a club. I was like, I should describe her dancing. So I stood back, and I took notes, and then I, that was the last paragraph. I described her dancing. And... <laughs> I got like five different people coming up to me. You have a crush on her, don't you? It was like, no, I was describing her dancing. Yeah, yeah. You're just you were just doing an anthropologist, basically. You're basically, just, you know, yeah. describing the, the tribal mores of this this or uh, trying scene. To. Um, but um, I, th- I think that's you know, especially with the American story, as as um, as you say. Since often the genres actually come from overseas, it is it is the actual party organisation, and the struggle. Well, the genres come from the states too. Yeah, that's true. They they do sometimes, but a lot of them come from my country and from the rest of the. The, the, the wrinkles come yeah, from your yeah, country, yeah. but um, uh, that is, I think, I think you're right in that. that the parties and and also the struggle in in a very hostile environment in a lot right. of cases is actually the defining. We had that hostility in the UK for a, f- uh, a few years, but they, it very quickly got legalised and uh, organised into a leisure, in, you know, a, a leisure industry. But the struggle in the states went on for a long while, and it, it, it's only in the last few years really that it's become this legitimate money-making thing. Right, and and of course you're always going to run into people. I've ran in, uh, metaphorically ran into somebody that do several people this morning because I did a radio show and we get and took callers, and the first caller was just like, "Oh my God," ranting. <laughs> uh, it was amazing. It was like this is kind of impressive. It's eight in the morning, and I'm getting yelled at over the phone by somebody for liking dance music. It's like, so here you, you go. So you think, in some ways, it's not just a, a legal, administrative, uh, political hostility to raise. There's a, also cultural biases against yeah. mechanical rhythmic music. Uh, yeah, but you invent, but also at the same time it was invented in you know to some extent. Oh in yeah, I mean Detroit and Chicago, right? Invented here, codified there. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. Uh, there, which is funny. I mean, the, I mean the the reason that that caller was so vivid in my mind is because they insisted that hip hop was stupid too. It was just like, okay, dude, but the you know you get a lot of. I mean, even hip hop fans a lot of times think it's stupid because you know, and, and dance music, dance music, yeah. yeah. And that, frankly, has a lot to do with the dress code, the candy, the the trappings, mm-hmm. uh, the 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 willful immaturity of it, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think also um, certainly early on, even though the, the, you know the main musical roots of it were Chicago and Detroit and New York. For a lot of places in the, in America, when the when the scene started, it seemed like a goofy, imported fad, didn't it? It seemed like something, you know, and, and you, uh, that that link between um, much more 
uh, you know, authentic seeming, rooted in America subcultures was completely obscured for a lot of people. A lot of people thought it came from England. In that right. Way. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I remember in, in 1999 talking to a girl I'd met at a party and her, and and at one point I was like, where do you think this music came from? And she's like, well, Moby invented it. <laughs> so, you know, he's American, but I mean, the, like, there's there was very little grasp of the you know the roots of it and it's not like you have to grasp the roots of anything to enjoy it but mm. the the thing that gets obscured a lot and is the fact that it is black music it's mm. black american music and that's at root and even a lot of the a lot of the wrinkles from england are are black hip uh jungle is black it, yeah. at root so you have that going on and for Americans being sold this thing as an English import, that's completely thrown off the table. Yeah. Um, you know that it, it's interesting. Um, you don't. I mean, you don't hear that from people from Detroit. They know people from Chicago know, right. but outside of that, it was very hard to know that. Right. Well, uh, why don't you tell us your take on? You know, we're in LA, and LA had uh, still has, but was uh, one of the first and the strongest rave scenes in America, one of the wildest and, you know... Probably the, the first. Yeah. So t- tell us what you think is... Um, what define you know, what do you think, in your sense, defines LA as a, as a raving ethos or a spirit? And also, what's unique about the urban landscape or the, you know, beyond the city landscape as well, well that lend itself to certain kinds of parties that other places didn't have? In both Northern and Southern California, there's a lot of English expats. Um, I, I was saying this in San Francisco. The difference, the main difference, is that in San Francisco they could mix. Uh, in LA, they couldn't, and you can hear that on the tapes. Um, there was a certain sort of reinventing of self going on with a lot of the English DJs who'd come to LA to start, who started the scene here, or really kind of started that part of. You know, there were already parties, there were already DJ parties, but I think it's a lot like the difference. Things called. Uh, I'm, I know that speakeasies were San Francisco, and there's a lot of data in the book that I'm not. Bringing, that is not coming to mind immediately, but there were after-hours parties here that were going on in the late 80s where you'd hear uh, house and techno music, but they weren't necessarily raves. Uh, the, that matrix with MDMA is, whether or not anybody is on MDMA, the matrix comes from that interface. Yeah. Um, I think I just... Never mind. Matrix and interface are the same word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> editing. Um, there, I mean, it's a sprawling city, and there's a lot of warehouse space, and it was yeah. cheap. And there were all kinds of ways to go out and do this without getting caught. Wow. Uh, there were all kinds of places for it to happen. That makes a big difference. Well, you mentioned one, one, one thing that sounded remarkable. Uh, perhaps you could tell us a bit about it. Is, is that you mentioned a rave that took place at Burbank Airport yeah. in a hangar. Yeah. What was the story behind that? You know, I didn't really get the story behind it so much. Uh, that was Bri- that was Brian Balendorf uh, 
told me about going to that party and that was just like whatever that was like par for the course whereas i think in most other cities that would have been like you did what You'd like, you'd like to think an airport would be so safe and secure that nothing like that could but ever happen. <laughs> right, but that's also post... But we're also talking post-9-11, and prior right. to that, things were a really A bit more lax, really, right? Yeah, yeah. much more relaxed. Um, that wouldn't be the way... I, when, I, I did, when I did my book, um, someone told me there was a rave... Uh, that took place partly on the Spruce Goose, like yes. actually on the wooden Howard yes. Hughes's wooden the, plane. Not, and it wasn't <laughs> just a rave; it was like a promoted event with 808 State and Moby, and, and maybe right. I'm getting the the lineup a little wrong. No, Shaman and Moby. Right. The, he was the opening act. Yeah. Um, but do you think there's, you know, obviously there's a certain kind of um, new, uh, odd relationship between San Francisco and LA. And there does seem to be like like there's a gulf, a huge gulf between the sort of ethos. The San Francisco rave ethos is, is vastly different from the LA one. I mean, what? Yeah. How would you characterize that? Uh, the difference between Berkeley and everywhere else, almost. Uh, San Francisco rave was really doctrinaire in a way yeah. that just didn't apply in LA. In LA, it was party time, and the the thing that LA did throughout its history was the bouncy you know the bouncy castles and the the kitty trappings and the the kind of outsized uh candy aspect whereas in San Francisco that was fr- I mean it existed but there was a faction that really frowned upon it and I'm sure there was in LA too and that's a, and frankly that's a little harder for me to gauge because one of the primary sources for the book were a number of mailing lists uh, the archives of six different mailing lists one of which was the first one SF raves and there was SoCal raves too but I didn't have access to those archives if I did I could probably talk about that with a lot more authority Hmm. but my sense has always been that Los Angeles's party scene was a lot more like up for it Uh, well in San Francisco they were very much on the this is raising consciousness it's it's a it's a it's a new Counterculture. Yes. That was always the thing, wasn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, so just, you know, very much flashing back, reactivating late 60s ideas. Right, yeah. Like, even though Timothy Leary was from L.A., uh, you know, that was, that was a, one of the guideposts for sure. And, the, you know, there was a lot of experimentation with the music and with drugs and with technology all happening at the same time in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, you had Silicon Valley there. You had an up, you had a real surge in psychedelics in the late '80s and early '90s. Mm. That really smart contributed drinks to it. and all that stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. that too. Yeah, Mon- I, is it, is it, where was Mondo 2000? The magazine San Francisco, place? right? Yeah, San Francisco. Like, Wired's Mondo. Yeah, like there there was that whole edge culture aspect to it. That sort of cyberpunk thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was I said to I was saying the other day that like. You know, sometimes I'll, if I see something, the word cyber is so, so early 90s and of its time. And if you want to, you know, I'll see something and I'll just like, that's so cyber. <laughs> like, the, like almost as an insult, but kind of, but not really. Like, I, I, I admire it a little too. It's just yeah. like, I, I like that people, you know, that it's also, and I mentioned this in the book, worth remembering that in 1992, the idea of futurism meant getting your hands dirty it meant wires it meant you know it meant black tar and burnt wiring and now the future means frictionless edgeless ipods 
Yeah. So you, one interesting thing that you disc, you explore in the book, which I don't think anyone else has ever written about, is the role of um, the very early internet. Yeah. Was it even the internet? Was it the World Wide Web? I can I can never get them confused. It but becomes it, the internet yeah. after Brian Balendorf yeah. writes the Apache Code, but which he does after he founds SF Raves, which is the founding American mailing list for right. the rave scene. So it's, it's like the very lumbering early bulletin boards and right. things that V-Rave. are now almost campy to look at. Yeah, BBSs and yeah. I mean, you don't. There's really no. Uh, Unless somebody copied and pasted a V-Rave chat into a mailing list post, there's no real record of that stuff. But the mailing lists were invaluable, like really invaluable. The San Francisco chapter begins with an account of two parties on the same night. Nearly all of it is drawn from about 20 different SF Raves posts. Mm. Um, That was the really great thing about having those to hand was I could glean them for details that I just Mm. would not have gotten anywhere because, you know, nobody's going to remember that kind of stuff 20 years later. It's just Mm. not going to happen. So that was really incredibly helpful. But conversely, one of the things that seemed really important and much more so than in the UK, I think, was actually old-fashioned paper fanzines were very important in terms of connecting such a disparate, yes. dispersed sort of uh, right. culture. And yeah, and that's where LA plays a big part too, because Herb is the most professional, best-looking, probably best-edited fanzine from America in the mm. early years. Mm. And then it turns into a real magazine, and it's actually a pretty good magazine. It's decently written. It's laid out well. They co- they're covering hip-hop too, and that's another big difference with LA. Uh, you kind of the, the side rooms would have funk DJs and hip hop DJs as opposed to ambient DJs, which you would have a lot in San Francisco and in other cities. And then mm-hmm. by the mid '90s, it turns more into drum and bass. The side rooms are where the drum and bass DJs play. Right. What are some of your favorite? You know, you could get some pretty goofy, spiritual, new agey stuff in some of these fancies. What, what are some of your favorite goofy Ooh. MDMA influenced? Uh, writings or graphics Uh, that you've come across? Oh my god, that's a really good question. I I mean... It's, I didn't make a scientific study of the of zines the way I could with the with those mailing list archives just because I had them kind of in toto, um, and most of the zines I I looked at came from rave archive, and so that's a you know that's one selection and there were others, uh, but a lot of what I really relied on was more informational than sort of scene based. That said, I did see quite a lot of that. Um, the, I mean, I guess the really obvious one is Your Sister's Rant, which was published from San Francisco by, uh, the, the author was a woman I interviewed named Liz Roberts, who founded a, a short-lived uh, party crew called Your Sister's House. And it was basically this sort of new-agey uh, feminist uh, announcement of intent. Uh, and there's one line in it that I really love, which is, um, we do not wish to alienate that which is male. <laughs> um, so that was it like then a sort of like a raver's riot girl? 
Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah, but super new agey and super hippie and super like right. crunchy, like <laughs> very granola. And um, is it online? Can people find this online? Or is it yeah, I think right. it's it's fairly easy to find. I mean, it was reprinted in a lot of zines um, in Minneapolis. I remember going to a party in 1994 that was directly like somebody had reprinted that in a zine, and a month later, this party happened. Mm. And it was uh, Darcy from San Francisco and uh, Miss Miss from the Twin Cities. Great DJ. Uh, she was a regular at the Gay 90s. She was a great house DJ. And uh, tribal. And she uh, and and somebody else from San Francisco who had been part of the part of the Your Sisters house parties. Um, zines in the Midwest were a big thing for me too because I remember going in 1993 to a New Year's Eve party and coming home with like six different zines. Mm. The first first issue I ever saw of the Chicago Hardcore Authority which was a jungle zine and Chicago had a pretty active drum and bass scene and that was really, really potent. It was really like it wasn't like Pulitzer winning or anything but it was like in your face in a way that you weren't necessarily seeing and of course they're adopting the jungle you know they're adopting the British jungle in your face attitude that's the you know and they're also hip hop fans so there's that aspect of it as well and that that spoke to me it was like oh wow this is like this is somebody really writing this is somebody like really like putting it out there that I liked, um, and massive from Milwaukee, which is where the title comes from. Uh, the underground is massive was Massive Magazine's slogan. Uh, I read that. I read every issue like that I could get my hands on. I would go to parties. I would pick it up. Uh, they covered a lot of music. Uh, there was always there was just always great stuff in some of these. And then Reactor, David Prince's zine. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember coming home with all three of those and just pouring over them, like because you didn't read about this stuff anywhere else. Even mm-hmm. like when mainstream media covered it, or even alternative weeklies covered it, they were kind of they were just covering what they were getting sent in the mail, which was compilations or albums on la- on real labels. They weren't you know they weren't going out and digging for the 12 inches they weren't conversant you know you i i loved city pages city pages was the alternative weekly in the twin cities and one of my first the first place i really wrote for it formed me in a lot of ways uh rigorous writing will hermes was the music editor in the mid 90s uh, a lot of great writers came out of that and uh but None of those people knew who Underground Resistance were, and I didn't even know who Underground Resistance were until I started reading about them in zines. Well, it was uh, something, you know, that people of our age in the audience will understand this viscerally as, as being part of our being, but, I mean, for younger people in the audience, it's hard to convey how much work was involved in being into some, anything obscure in those days. I mean, it was, it was just... And you had to go places and... And you wouldn't and, find you out know, what things were until yeah. years later. Because the 12 inches were coming out in such limited quantity, and they were only being bought by DJs. Um, Tommy Sunshine told me a story I didn't, that I had to cut for space about... He went to Gramophone Records in Chicago, and he was buying a 12-inch and getting scowled at by the staff because he wasn't a DJ. What the hell was he buying this 12-inch for? He was taking it away from a real <laughs> DJ. Like that was really that was the attitude. It was there like you're that many t- copies, though. right? It's yeah. like there's only 500 of this in the world. What are you doing? You're ruining this, <laughs> you know. 
So the the, the, the also, onus, you know, if if you heard something at a club or uh, like on pirate radio, yeah, you couldn't Shazam it. You know, it was like it might be in some cases it was four years before I found out what something was, and only by accident, in fact. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, you're going to read something in a minute, um, but I just wanted before that I wanted to ask you, uh, and sticking with sort of the mediatization of music, yeah, uh, into early internet fanzines. For me, in spending a lot of time in the UK at that time, pirate radio was this obsession of mine. Um, it was just about the most exciting thing. It added more excitement to already exciting music, just the way it was presented. Yeah, but I don't get the sense there was. A, Musical pirate didn't really have much of a no. role here at all, did it? No, that was mixtapes' role. That was right. the role of mixtapes. You'd buy, like, you would buy the tape. I wouldn't because I didn't buy mixtapes. And I look back and I'm like, what? What's what was wrong with me? And I realized what was wrong with me. I had limited means and I wanted to spend it on records that I knew I would where I would know what the songs were, frankly. You know. And I liked a lot of music, so I was buying rock records and hip hop records and even dance records that were, you know, actual albums. Um, a mixtape was an iffier bargain. Mm. But for the hardcore like the for the kids who were like lifers, real mm. lifers, that's what you know mm. Brandon Ivers from Minneapolis, uh, drum and bass DJ and a friend of mine was just like you didn't listen to like ravers didn't listen to CDs. They listened to mixtapes. You'd buy a mixtape. You'd put it in the car. You'd just keep playing it until you got the next one. But it's it's not unknown for there to be pirate stations in America. In, my, in Miami, there's I, I saw a documentary on Miami base, and there was a, a Miami base pirate radio station. What are the obstacles? Is it just the people who run the airways are much more yeah. powerful here? Oh yeah, yeah. For sure. I mean, there isn't a national radio station like in England. And also, the role of dance music on radio in America was mostly taken up by college radio. Oh, right, right. College radio, you would often, you know, there'd be somebody on campus with a two-hour slot on a Wednesday or something. Um, and especially early on in the early 90s, like, when the music was a lot harder to find... What they'd be doing, uh, Damien Higgins, Diesel Boy, was telling me about this, where he had a radio show on his college station, and basically he was just playing mix, not even mix CDs, he was playing like CD compilations, sort of mixing them on air, and not really, you know, like that's all he could get his hands on yeah. at that point. Like it did take a long time to sort of trickle into outside of the outside of the coasts. So you mentioned David Princeton Reactor, and yes. I think the bit you're going to read is about one of his greatest exploits as a promoter, right? No, actually. Um, I'm reading... Uh, the, his greatest exploit as a promoter was the it was a decade earlier than this. Oh, right. Oh, yes. oh you're doing... Coachella. Oh, sorry, okay. Yeah, the... the, the Daft the Punk Coachella. Version, the thing that Dave Prince did was the one um, where Daft Punk made their first appearance. Yes, right? he brought... He, he and Kurt X from Milwaukee and Woody McBride from Minneapolis put on the further parties, uh, the first one and the third one at least. David got out after the third one, and I think Woody did too. Um, but Kurt... Kurt is one of the kind of undersung heroes. He, you've written about him, people have written about him, but uh, and I didn't write about him as much as I wanted to, frankly. I had to cut a lot for space, but uh, one of the great kind of undersung heroes of that 
era because he he was a straight shooter. He was actually a good businessman and was good on, good on his word, which was pretty uncommon in a scene where a lot of the promoters were in high school. But they 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 brought over Daft Punk. Before they were really known, into fields in Wisconsin, right? Basically. Yes, and and, uh, and 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 Eagle Cave was uh, was the name of the venue or the the site uh, for the third further, which was even further ninety six. I went to the first further right. in ninety four in in Hickston, Wisconsin, and that was a chapter I ended up cutting, unfortunately. But like it didn't it didn't move the narrative along enough, frankly. But uh, anyway, I, I was, it's, a, it's a decade along, and a decade later, no longer playing in a field. In no. Wisconsin, they're now playing they're Coachella. No, they're playing Coachella. What was Daft Punk going to do? Speculation ran rampant. Is it going to be robots with drums and guitars like the Robot Rock video? Guessed a friend of Josh Glazer's. No one was allowed to find out early around 10.30 p.m. in the middle of Londoners Audio Bully's Sahara uh, tent set. The backstage was cleared. Only people who had special Daft Punk laminates could get back there, says David Prince. It was definitely headliner treatment. Taking one last look, Prince saw, quote, Jerry Gerard running around working his ass off. And Jerry Gerard was Daft Punk's uh, booking agent, uh, up, into, up to and including, but not past, Coachella. At 11 p.m., Depeche Mode finished playing on the main stage. Everyone from the entire festival basically went to the dance tent, says Tom Windish, another booking agent. Prince took his place between the soundboard and right stage front. Close to the center was local promoter manager Danny Johnson. Velo Verkhouse, who was one of the first uh, real visuals people in the scene from Chicago, uh, watched from the wings. It was insane, says Verkhouse. People as far as you could tell, almost to the next tent and then the fence. Pasquale Rotella was on the left side, quote, probably 500 to 800 people from the stage, he says. In back at the tent's edge, 19-year-old Cinespace regular Dylan Francis made out with a girlfriend. Windish stood just outside. It was so full I couldn't get any closer without fighting, he says. Glazer and his friends had been slamming Red Bull vodkas in VIP before running to the tent. On the way, Glazer stopped at a plastic stall. I was actually in the porta potty looking at the jumbotron through the little vent screen when I heard the close encounters of the third kind theme, he says. Uh, and I want to pause here. I don't, uh, I don't highlight this in the book, but this is a direct callback to the electrifying mojo in Detroit. He would play the Close Encounters theme and land the mothership every night. And, of course, Mojo was one of the formative DJs for all of the Detroit people, for all the Detroit producers who invented techno. Glazer continues, Then the lights came up and there's the pyramid and the robots are in the pyramid. Daft Punk had been dressing as robots for years, so their outfits weren't exactly a surprise, but the suits lit up spectacularly. They made Rabbit in the Moon's glow stick outfit look like cardboard. The stage set was even mightier, a three-dimensional pyramid-come-spaceship that both nodded to P-Funk's mothership and, by extension, the electrifying mojo, and served as a set of screens for vivid projection mapped colors and patterns. That was probably the first time I had seen 3D projection mapping done on that scale, says David Prince. There was a lot of wondering of how it was being done. Gerard was watching the show. He says, with some of the most cutting-edge video people in the world, and they were like, how did they do that? Over a year later, after the show hit the road, Spin Magazine explained, quote, 
Thomas Mangalter and Guimán uh, de Homam Cristo uh, communicate with one another via mics and monitors built into the helmets, remixing on the fly from inside the pyramid. Wireless Ethernet links, the, mo- the mini moogs, and virtual synths at their metallic fingertips to offstage custom computers that have the processing power of nine tricked out Mac G5s. This is 2007. <laughs> While the musical and visual elements are scripted and pre sequenced, both Daft Punk and their lighting director can improvise around set cues, end quote. Whatever the specs, the effect was galvanic. It was mayhem, says Prince. It was group movement, but there's a lot of just jumping, especially down in front. Even the hard-to-impress Pasquale Rotella was caught up. I was extremely impressed. They were epic. If you weren't there, your friends on site were blowing you up. The number of text messages and IMs I was getting from Coachella was amazing, says Bonnie Chuan, who went on Sunday. I can't even describe what's going on. This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It wasn't just the dance people. It occurred to me when I was seeing them play how exciting this was to people and how it was a revelation to a lot of them, says Vivian Host. I had been doing this all along. Yeah, raves are awesome. We all love flashing lights and pounding dance music. Duh, obviously. All the tastemakers were at Coachella, says Disco Donia Stopanal. They thought rave music was dirty and gross, and they were finally able to put dance music together with the visual aspect that was apparently so important. They were finally able to see what everyone else had been seeing the whole time. It made it cool. Prince calls the set a moment of triumph. Think about the stones and the guitar riff of satisfaction. Daft Punk has 20 of those. Steve Aoki was also in the tent. One reason electronic music is such a successful big group scenario is that you aren't watching a singer. You're experiencing the feeling of the music around you and being part of a larger experiential feeling. Watching Daft Punk, it's about absorbing the music. This is how you present it, with production. After Daft Punk at Coachella, says Tom Windish, people realized what could be possible. Maybe if we spent more on our show, we could have that. Walking back to their car, Glazer's friends smiled. That's where that raver's been hiding. What raver, Glazer asked. You. Um, so there's an interesting, uh, there's an interesting contrast there. You know, it's even further, Daft Punk appearing in America for the first time. Uh, I was actually there. Uh, you could barely see the band. It was dark. Uh, the dance floor was like pools of mud. Uh, there was no visual register for this music Coachella it's become uh, something else, it's, it's the beginning of a phase where dance music dance music always had, always had trippy lighting it always had, you know, it even had a few star sort of video jocks and, and, yeah. and lighting people but, workhouse. but it's sound above visuals really right. until the phase that is inaugurated by Daft Punk which is where it becomes a, uh, a fully integrated audiovisual Experience. Yes, it's spectacle as much as it is a, a wall, you know a, a sonic immersion. What do you think are the the pros and cons of this shift? Uh, what 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 is lost? What is gained? Oh, the, the 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 old little Richard line. I got what I wanted, but I lost what I had. Um, the what was gained? I would I, obviously it blew up. It turned it into. It turned it into a juggernaut. It turned it into something that finally was co-equal with hip-hop, rock, country, and anything, and pop in the American uh, music scape. 
uh, and particularly in the live music scape. Mm. And particularly as the record industry has faltered, the live, you know, the live music business is the music business now. So on that level alone, it became co-equal with anything. Um, the cons, well, I, you know, a lot of empty music. Mm. A lot of a lot of subservience to the show, a lot of you know, a lot of laziness, a lot of hiding behind effects, and it's really funny that I would say that, I guess, because here I am extolling music that's about effects, you know, in many cases, but the, the grooves, you know, the great thing about dance music is how the grooves work, how they, you know, how they interact, and that became less important. It became more important that... You know, everything reached the crescendo at the same time, and that the light, the, you know, that everything sinks yeah. together, and that became, you know, that became a formula, a really easily replicable formula that took away from it musically. I think. I also think it changes the relationship uh, between the audience and. Uh, Oh yeah, performers. Because oh yeah, I mean you got that with star DJs before the visuals mm-hmm. are so important. But in the beginning, I mean, I remember clubs I went to. I didn't actually know where the DJ was. They were tucked away in some little crevice or cavity in the wall. And that was almost uh, better. And it, the point was that the circulation of bodies in this space. It was about the gang of friends you went with. You went all fa- you you faced inwards together in a circle, and also you be- became friends or had encounters with complete strangers. You weren't all in this line you know staring at this right. spectacle so it, cha- it changed the whole right politics and, of the culture I think, right and if you think about what was getting closer to that level of popularity during the 90s in america and i don't just mean like the chemical brothers i mean sasha and digweed there's a line in there from bruce tantum about going to see them at twilo and realizing that everybody's just watching the djs like it's a show and not dancing Mm-hmm. Uh, that became, you know, it, it, this this definitely codified that. Where that instead of people going, "What's that? Why do I care? Why am I watching a DJ just play records? Where's the show?" Well, now you have a show, so you can just do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if if you want to just watch a show, there's nothing wrong with that. But within the context of dance music, it's really beside the point well it becomes showbiz whereas it, it was actually underground and i think part of that yeah. emphasis on sound you know there's that an early house track the title something like a basement a red light and a feeling you know yes and, uh, that's all you needed was a, you know one red light bulb right and the th- and the music that you were just immersed in and uh, it was a uh, right it was an audio tactile experience rather than a right but at the same time blitz. and I, I, yeah. I, I'm also leery of sounding too scoldish about this because I've certainly watched people do things on a stage or watched the pretty lights on a stage and had a major experience doing that too I mean I can't take that away from anybody if, if that's if that's what gets people in there then and, and they make their and they make the kind of discoveries that I made while dancing to this music, then, you know, I'm happy for them, genuinely. I want, you know, I know what the music has meant to me over the years, and I want the music to mean that to people, too. And if it takes a different form, then so be it. But, you know, part of me is going to always, I'm an old guy, I guess. I'm not going to, 
I, I, it isn't just a matter of my youth. It is, you know, my youth in flower, blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, I think there is a significantly different sort of aspect to it that, mm. um, I mean, I, you know, you go to, but then you go to Ultra, or I went to Ultra for the book, and it's interesting because my, my sort of, like, fusty expectations of things get upended a little bit, too. Oh, right. So were you impressed by that version of EDM then? Um, impressed is a good word, yes. Um, uh, in love with, of course, you know, that's a whole different thing. But, like, you know, I've definitely, even when I'm not, like, into it, if I'm in a group of people who are into it, that's a pretty significant thing to experience. Mm. Even, even secondhand, even as the clearly oldest person in the <laughs> crowd, even as the one guy taking notes on paper. <laughs> I went to... Uh, my first real experience with big... with Stadium EDM was in the summer of 2012. I went to Identity Festival in New York. And Identity Festival was... It was just the second... Uh, it was the second uh, tour of... Uh, Eric Prides was the headliner. It was just a lot of people. And uh, I remember just having... Actually, I told you about this, and you, I'm going to quote you here. Uh, I, I, wrote to, I sent Simon the piece that I wrote, and he wrote back. He said, it sounds like you had a really great bad time. That's exactly what I had. It, it was like, I didn't like it, but it was amazing. Your notebook was full of you know, great... Annoyed comments. <laughs> yeah, I was I was floored. It was just like, and 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 it was, and part of it was, I mean, I'm I'm happy I wrote what I wrote. I thought I'd actually use a lot more of it in the book than I did, but but it also would have gotten in the way of the story, and it was too long. But you know, that was that was a turning point for me where it was just like, okay, this is actually interesting, even if I don't love it. So, I mean, I have to take this seriously enough to sort of engage it. And, you know, whether I engage it properly in the view of people who love that aspect of things or not is not my call. Well, let's open it up to the audience. And uh, has anyone got any questions for Marcos? <coughs> you want to you uh, call I'll be the folks? moderator, yeah. Uh, so it seems that, and this was a long time ago, but it seemed like in Los Angeles at least, like in the late 80s, early, early 90s, that a lot of the success and momentum from sort of the, the, that, that culture really taking off here, that it seemed like a lot of it really had to do with gay youth culture. Yeah. That that was a big problem. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you find that, that that was really like a major source of momentum all across the country in different scenes? Um, if I had made more of a study of that study, you know what I mean. Uh, I mean, ultimately, it is a study, but that sounds fusty and academic. But uh, it, yeah, if I had if I'd looked at it more closely on that level, I might have. Um, I was I didn't talk about that so much because I the thread I'm the thread I was following was the thread to mass popularity and the the sort of that arc. I mean there's a lot of ways you can tell a story like this and that was the one I chose. But the so and and frankly I shortchanged that in the book. As I shortchange a lot of things in the book. Uh, just by necessity to keep the thing focused. Um, I think there was a healthy amount of that in the scene overall, uh, particularly in. I think I think the big difference is that the clubs became more about 
you know, the, like the split between house and techno that started to occur around '92 was symptomatic of that. Like house mainly stayed in clubs and was very gay, primarily so, whereas raves, even though there were lots of gay people at raves, it wasn't necessarily driven in the same way. Um, There's one, more sort of teenage and suburban. Yeah, it? very much so. Um, one one of the quotes that I wanted to include and just couldn't, uh, it was part of a chapter I had to cut, uh, was from New York City Raves mailing list, and it was in 1994. It was some party at Webster Hall, and the guy wrote... David Morales, I thought this was supposed to be a rave. <laughs> and, the, and by that point, that was, there was a real split there. Um, the, so, yeah, I think, I think there was, and I, don't, and, and I don't think you can, it's not as easy as to say, or it's not as simple as the, the rave scene wasn't gay or there weren't gay people in the rave scene, but I didn't investigate it in quite that way. What's that? Uh, what is your take on the link between the world you're writing about and the dominant American club music of the 70s disco? Do you discuss that in the book? And a little bit. Yeah, a little bit, because by 94, you're starting to get all these disco sample tracks, all these, like, people, you know, it's really funny whenever I see, I remember around 2006, you start to read about the disco revival in New York, and it was like, oh, like what, the 12th? You know, like how like how many times can we revive disco and call that new? I remember in '94, like you'd go like if you were here, if you were listening to and dancing to house music in 1994, you were dancing to disco samples. The Bomb, Welcome to the Warehouse by Paul Johnson. Uh, you know, you, you just name them all, uh, and they were super gritty and lo-fi, particularly the Chicago tracks. Well, there was one. There was a. Track by Gusto called Disc- Disco's, Disco's Revenge, ninety six. Yeah, 96, so. yeah, like that. Yeah, that kind of capped it almost. Yeah. There was like the, there were all these tracks that were doing that. So and so, disco was also a very kitschy thing within the rave scene in terms of its perception. Like you. In St. Louis, there was a crew called the Superstars of Love, and their whole thing was to like dress in outlandish disco gear. It was, I mean, it was sort of a joke, but it was also it was a very fond joke. Uh, Delight also, you know, that was kind of a big step into that. Like, it's really funny to think about because you don't. It's hard to realize just how despised disco was as a culture up until the very late '80s and early '90s. Um, I rem- like Spin Magazine did a did a thing in like 1988. It was like a guide to disco, and it was like, and and the tone of it is very like we know it's kish, but we don't care. And it took a long time for that to stop being the sort of fallback mode. It was almost apologetic, like you had to apologize for liking disco because it had been so despised for so long culturally. Um, and I think rave culture really did, it really looked to disco as a halcyon era, as did club music. So they were, you know, they were sort of parallel on that track, but obviously different sorts of audiences and different sorts of sounds, I think. Yes? This is something I think you touched on in the book, but sort of to you. Um, how, much, how much do you think the difference experience between the UK and the US was really about sort of? Yes, there's cultural things and whatnot, but with the size of the countries, you know, England it was Manchester and London, the US was, you know, yeah. And that had a lot to do with right. time 
mind. It did, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if California were a country unto itself, then we would be having a completely different discussion. Absolutely, yes. That makes a big difference, you know. Um, it, the fact that it's a road trip culture makes a big difference, too. Uh, the road trip culture aspect is, is in, you know, it's inherent in it. Uh, if you were a mid, you know, if I was from Minneapolis, and it was like, where are we going to go? For the party this weekend, are we going to go to Milwaukee? Are we going to go to Madison, Chicago, Detroit, St. Louis, Louisville? And that was normal. That's what you did. You drove for hours and hours and hours to go to the party. It was intrinsic to it. And that's partly to do with its inheritance from the UK as well, with you hearing, you know, they'd, they'd give instructions on pirate radio to the orbital raves. Um, so, you know, it, it was romantic that way. Uh, and certainly, L.A. is sprawling enough that it's a road trip culture unto itself to be going to parties here. Um, and the Bay Area is a little similar. It's like three different cities. You can have the parties all over. Um, the Midwest was the same, whereas there weren't really that many parties going on in Utah, and it wasn't just because it was Utah and it wasn't you know L.A. It was because there wasn't that many people and there just weren't that many cities close together. The southern rave scene in particular is so spread out that it never coheres as a scene the way the Midwest does. Florida is unto itself. That's a different thing. But like uh, the, you know, what Tommy Sunshine refers to as Charlotte's Web. Atlanta, Charlotte, and uh, Nashville, I think. Are, are for, I'm forgetting uh, in Virginia. But yeah, like those cities were like 10 hours apart and that made it a lot harder to to just jump in the car and do that as opposed to if you're in Minneapolis and you can go to M- Madison in three hours. Was your, was your question about the, the different, the slowness of it to take here? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of this got to do with um, in Britain there's a much more centralised media, both the music press and, and star magazines that are Read all around the all over the country and and seized on it and and you know so it became a known thing that people read about and tried to create their own little local replica of uh, based on these articles in the face or uh, enemy or something like that. Right. But also the national newspapers as well. You know we we, we don't really have city based newspapers. We have national newspapers that are read all through the country and they seized on it as a shock horror thing. Like you know oh my god what are the the kids up to your ch- your children might be going to these awful raves and and, uh, and being plied with drugs and that sort of made lots of kids want to go and be plied with drugs at, at, at these at these parties um, whereas I think in America what made a lot of kids want to go to parties was the fact that people were getting arrested grave was the big I, there's a chapter on grave in Milwaukee and you know 900 people arrested and most of the fines are dropped but I mean I spoke to more than one person and I was one of those per, one of those people who was like they all got arrested and then they got off where's the next one <laughs> like that sounds awesome <laughs> but there was a, f- a funny thing like I remember in the 90s like every on American TV every year there'd be like a, a program on TV saying like um, the new thing it would be like 1997 or something the new thing raves drug supermarkets and it would be like telling parents about something they didn't know about so it was it UK ca- or US it, you're talking it, yeah I'm talking about America like, okay yeah it, seemed, yeah it never seemed to quite take as a national scandal story whereas in Britain it was a national scandal story as soon as it happened and that sort of made it 
diffuse, you know. Uh, yeah, it, it, much quicker. You know. Right. Yeah, like there'd be, uh, yeah, there'd be a scare every two years. Yeah, it was almost like it never quite, uh, and until um, what's his name, um, the vice president, Biden, Joe Biden. Yes, he, uh, he made it a big national. Yeah, thing, right? in two thousand two. Well, this is after the and this is after the DEA raided the Disco Donnie party in two thousand, and basically the government was trying to crack down. And when you look at the numbers, it's sort of easy to see why because the flow of MDMA into the country had skyrocketed. Um, the I think it was something under four hundred thousand seizures of it in nineteen ninety seven, and then the first two months of two thousand. It's like two million, just in just in those two months. So you know the government is just like, what the hell? Like we need to stop this. Uh, so this the Rave Act, right? the Rave Act, reducing Americans' vulnerability to ecstasy, <laughs> <laughs> and it worked. Nobody takes ecstasy anymore. <laughs> uh, any other questions, you sir? One of the things really interesting when you talk about kind of the scare story and the importance of that development, and I can't help but think that in, in the U.S. and '90s, that's hip hop, right? The whole way through, that 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 you know that kids are getting violent, misogynistic lyrics, and I'm wondering if maybe hip hop took some of the place in, in U.S. culture that that maybe rave occupied in. That's, I think, very true, and I would also say the inverse. I would say that rave took the place in England of hip hop in America. Uh, there was a, you know, that became the national scandal as opposed to hip hop. Um, also, though, um, I mean, you think about the Beastie Boys scandal around '87, the mm. the alleged, uh, I think it was Ad Rock allegedly assaulted somebody in a wheelchair, and it didn't actually happen, but it like became a story it be, you know it dogged them for a while and that sort of thing was much that because at that point hip hop got a lot more play in the media in England than it was in America in the late 80s there was recently a study this sort of science I mean it's kind of bunk but they they were sort of like oh hip hop surged in America in 1991 based on the charts well yes because of sound scan sound scan came along and suddenly Suddenly, everybody could. Everybody knew how well hip hop was selling. It had already been selling that well. It was already doing that well. But once the apparatus was in place for accurate information to be conveyed to the charts, that's when you started to see more written about hip hop and more of a spotlight on it in America in the '90s. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right about that about ga- gangster rave being. Um not gangster rave, gangster rap being the thing. <laughs> uh, gangster rave is a nickname I had for jungle. I called it gangster rave. Uh, that's why I got confused. Um, well, the oh, if yeah. you're, keep well, going. No, um, well, it, you know the fear. The fear. The fear is basically uh, sort of related to the old, the, an echo of the fears of rock and roll. You know, it's it's the. Uh, uh, Race racial mixing. mixing and uh, and you know um, learning about uh, bad attitudes from music and guns and all these kind of stuff uh, the glamorization of violence whereas in the UK um, that we did actually got that later in the in the two thousands um, uh, you know the influence of uh, hip hop being cited by various MPs and politicians as a bad force and uh, this one famous radio DJ Tim Westwood uh, being slagged off for um, 
he's a son of a bishop, but he, he talks in a Bronx, a Bronx sort of accent, and this was much criticised and mocked in in Britain. Right. Um, well, gangster. It's the term gangster rave is Pasquale Rotella's term for the parties that were going on in the East Side in the mid '90s, where the early to mid '90s, where it was a lot of basically in the Latino neighborhoods where it was a lot of Latino partiers and DJs and whatnot and he, like he had come out of that and he'd come from there but he you know he saw I think what he was doing as transcending that uh, he, he was he's very sharply critical of what he called the gangster raves like the like the bad element where they you know Cholo's robbing people is in his term uh, but yeah that uh the the Tim Westwood thing has an interest. I mean, that's a really interesting analog because you start to see that in the late '90s in the U.S. Uh, when Eminem and Limp Biscuit and people like that start to sort of rise in prominence, and suddenly everybody's like, there are like twenty thousand think pieces on the term wigger. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, anyone else? Sean. Um, fascinating by exploring all these different <coughs> histories in the U.S. And I was wondering. If- the writing of the book of how that affected the stories you wanted to tell or kind of the experience of Chicago and Detroit as kind of the cities with the established sort of mythologies and uh, histories that people were generally known, sort of how you wrote about them versus other areas of New York that had any effect or sort of what you, how you approach those cities and the cities. I think I tried, maybe I failed. Uh, but I think I tried throughout to like, and particularly in the early chapters, I really wanted it to be ground level. I wanted it to be about, again, people doing things and specific people doing specific things. Um, I think it's really easy to get swallowed up in the mythology of Detroit and Chicago, particularly as refracted through Europe. Um, there's so, I mean, and they're rich mythologies. It's really easy to do that. It's it's almost irresistible. Like, you know who wouldn't want to mythologize that stuff it's it's great you know it's really kind of amazing that all of that happened uh you know and and certainly those are heroes of mine and of a lot of people but i also wanted it to be like i i wanted it you know when when Vince Lawrence and Jesse Saunders are making their first records, it's, you know, this is a couple of teenagers doing, you know, doing these things, taking these steps, making these things happen. And they're not, they're not doing it with an eye toward it becoming a global culture at all. They're doing it because they want to be big in the neighborhood. And I think that was really important. I tried to keep that in mind very much throughout that particular part of the book. Um, I didn't want it to just be, and I also didn't want it to just be, oh, these guys did this thing by accident, and then it became a global culture, because they didn't do that by accident. The global culture part is the accident. Mm. Well, yeah, that's an interesting point, is that when people are making history, often, musical history, often they're, you know, they not only are they not aware that they're making history, they... They're they aware just, that they're making art, but they don't necessarily know they're making history. Yeah, I mean, I mean there, there, are exa- there are people who have a mythic sense of the self in dance music. Sure. There's um, Derek May, clearly and does, and d- always had. Uh, Goldie in the UK uh, had that kind of sense of himself as, as doing legendary things. But I think yeah. most of the time people are uh, like... 
thinking about making a track that's going to rock the next party that yes. they're DJing. You know, it's like it's very short term. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, and, and it, practical, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's not you know, and again, it doesn't it doesn't preclude there being a long term vision either. Yeah. Like that, you know, that isn't it isn't the same thing at all. It's but it's it's very focused. It's very it's very next step. I mean, you know, it's one step at a time. Um, and that's fascinating. I mean, that that process is fascinating. It's fascinating in big pop too. Mm. It's fascinating in any kind of music or any kind of culture. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Um, so, in the late '90s, there was this push by the record industries. I think you, you yes. mentioned before to kind of break dance music here. Electronica. Exactly, like Prodigy and the Chemical Brothers. Yes. How would you compare the current boom in EDM in America to that? Attempt and in terms of both its economic impact, also its longevity. Well, it's longevity. yeah, it's a whole different thing, wholly different. Uh, th- what's going on now, and what's been going on for the last f- at least five years, but let's say ten. I mean, five in the five in the viewpoint of people who had literally had no idea any of this was happening until Coachella, or I'm sorry, until EDC 11 outdrew Coachella. But it's you know it had been going on longer than that. Uh, this is not an attempt to sell this music to the rock audience. Particular, in particular, it's not an attempt to sell it to the alternative rock audience because that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, you know, alternative rock was this big bubble that happened in the '90s, and when that started to you know fall off around '95 or so. This was an attempt to fill that gap. What is the, you know, what is that mass audience that we've discovered likes this sort of stuff going to like next? So it'll be that, you know, and that was what they were trying to sell it to. They were trying to sell it to rock fans, and they tried to do it on rocks, uh, on rocks terms. Right, the albums. Um, which isn't to say that I don't love a lot of that music. I love the Prodigy. I love the Chemical Brothers in that era, um, but. Uh, and 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 there's no doubt to my mind whatsoever that they were doing what they wanted to do. Um, it just happened to dovetail nicely with what the record industry wanted to do. Um, this has nothing to do with the record industry, partly because the record industry barely exists, and partly to do with what, really what happened is the dance audience metastasized. A lot of younger people younger people um you know a lot of younger people had grown up with this music as part of their soundtrack i mean the really obvious parallel is the sex pistols the sex pistols were never big in america ever they were tiny in america but they never stopped selling records they just kept selling records forever they didn't you know they sold enough to stay in print they sold enough to stay in the public eye and eventually you know a lot of people who'd grown up hearing that as part of the rock matrix were like, oh, this has always been there. This has always been part of it. This is a natural thing to like alongside this other stuff. In 1978, if you liked the Sex Pistols, you got beat up in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, By 1990, that was not the case at all. And I think the same thing happened in dance music. Well, the Guns N' Roses had a Sex Pistols song on uh, the Spaghetti Incident, right? They? And uh, I think Motley Crue covered the Sex Pistols. Yeah, oh, lots yeah. of yeah, exactly. It had been absorbed. It had been absorbed into hard rock. It had become part of right hard rock. Um, but I think that's interesting what you say about it's not. This is not coming from the record industries. Is it coming from the live 
concert industry is that what it is? The it's promotion? coming from the fans and right. the and the live industry that caters to the fans yeah. it's coming from the party throwers and the partiers uh, you know it's it's ground up mm. and that really I think was the most surprising thing to a lot of people in the biz because they had been used for so long in America especially they were used to it being very top down and I think by now it's become pretty top down but it's also a different industry than the record industry of five or ten years ago too it's all it's it's the, it's a different uh, it's the, so what the commodity on sale is not music because you can get the music for nothing if you right. want it's it's a, it. it's a it's a unique experience and it's an event that yeah. only a certain number of people can be at and and uh, what interests me about the I've only been to the hard things but I, I was amazed at how much they are about this thing of I'm at the event you're not and I'm going to upload it from my phone as it's happening that seems to be part of being there and showing that you've been to this thing that other people aren't at right and uh, is part of the yeah what and, you're buying right you know, I mean things. and there's also the there's also the phenomenon which I don't go into in the book of the after movies that's where you start that's where the big promoters start filming what they're doing and putting up these 20 minute cuts of like you wish you were there it was so great mm-hmm. and then like and that really does and people see that and they're like gee I really mm-hmm. want to see gee I meant to say cheese try <laughs> but like yeah they like oh wow look at all these people having a great time I'd love to do that uh, and that that's really been a big selling point for a lot of the promoters mm-hmm. so uh, any other questions at the back there you next. Thank you. Right. Yes. Yes. You know, of course, the speed of dance music, but just the early that aspect of it was really interesting to me. Did you? Uh Sure. Yeah, I think I, I, you know, reading all those mailing lists. I mean, I, I did word searches. I didn't read everything, but it would have been impossible. Some of those, some of those files for one month are five thousand pages long, and even if you get rid of all the extra metadata and the repetition, it's still like a few thousand pages. Um, what I discovered, and this is probably not that surprising, people were having the same stupid, circular, endless, useless arguments 20 years ago that they're having now almost word for word. Literally. It's just like, wow. I mean, I would, you know, I'd be going through, I'd be looking up some party that I was going to be writing about, and I'd end up copying and pasting and wading through, like, wait, I'm like 20 posts into this utterly inane argument and it's not going to get any better (laughs) just as a reader and so i have to like oh i gotta like but and i'm trying to be complete right i'm trying to find interesting details that aren't going to be available elsewhere so i have to kind of slog through it a little bit but yeah uh, a lot of time wasted there uh (laughs) on my part and on theirs uh you sir had a question right I was wondering if you, if you, in your opinion, your research, can sort of have a sense of a pinpoint of when it actually stopped being underground. 
and moved into mainstream. Was there in America? Yeah. Daft Punk at Coachella. What? Daft Punk at Coachella. That's when. Oh, I, I mean, I, I feel like it happened way earlier than that. Well, I mean... Because I remember, like, for me it was... Um, but I guess I just James mean... James Brown is dead on the radio. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, uh, there... Are you talking about uh, Mar- Mars FM? The moment. Yeah. Mar- Mar- is that Mars FM you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Because that's the... Well, Right. Well, right. I, I actually I had a lot. I actually did a presentation on Mars FM at Pop Conference in LA a right. few years ago. So I have a longer version of that section of the book somewhere. But uh, but I feel like all of that bubble, you know, it kept bubbling to the surface and receding, bubbling and receding. You had that happening. By t- you know, I guess what I mean when I say Daft Punk at Coachella is that's the moment when it stays put. When it you know. When what's the bubble the, never burst. Like before, they were like these sort of false starts, weren't yes. they? It was like the over Mar- and over. the Mars FM, the huge rays in LA, huge ones in Florida moment, and then there's the uh, electronica or rocktronica, as I prefer to call it, moment. Then there's actually a funny moment when trance is getting really big. Yeah. You have thirty thousand raves in LA. Uh, Madonna does an album heavily influenced by trance. You know, there's all these waves, and then they all yeah, they just sink back again. And it's like right, and you have this Nadir in the mid two thousands when like. And people are actually leaving the country to go to oh, yeah. Berlin, right? Yeah. And DJs I, are leaving. I remember in 2005, I was living in Seattle, and I went out one night. Gr- perfect night of music for me. I see Bob Dylan at uh, Paramount Theater, and then I go and then I bicycle up to the Club Chop Suey to see Michael Mayer. So perfect for me. And I get up there, and there are literally 50 people in the room, including employees. And I literally was just thinking, this is... This is over. This is the. I mean, it was that I, like 2004. Or it was 2005, right. and it was just like this is the nader right here. Like I that's still be, was that in New York. Because I no, I, it was in Seattle. <laughs> I went to a club like that in New York in around 2004, and uh, it was disheartening because you know it was good music, but it was it was yeah 50 people, and at that scale, the sound system isn't good isn't big enough to actually make the music sound how it should sound. And it just felt like the whole. Everything has collapsed. There's no vibe. As a journalist, you'd put a fair amount of their reputation on the yes. the rise of this music. Absolutely. It was a disheartening I devoted, moment. You know? I had devoted yeah. like four pages of my section. I was the music editor of Seattle Weekly. I had divided the entire section to a big uh, jukebox jury Q&A with Michael Mayer by, by Gita Dayal, who, uh, and, and, you know, I'd hyped this thing. I really believed in it, and no one was there. Mm. And it, that was just, it, was def- it felt like a defeat. It really did. And it was just the fact that it ever got popular again. I remember in 2011 when I was finding out, like, oh, people were saying, this is going to, dance music is about to blow up in America. I'm like, whatever. I've seen this happen so many times now. Won't get fooled again. Right? Yeah, exactly. I, was, I had my guard up for real. And then it did. And I thought, oh, maybe it's the stuff I like. No, it's not the stuff I like. <laughs> but the, the the term I was trying to think of earlier is the sticky note on, on Twitter where it just sticks to the top. That's what Daft Punk at Coachella was. Any, anybody else? You, you sir? Uh, Madam Harlan? Um, yeah, just for Michael and Simon, both of you... Um, what are your top five or ten artists or bands? <laughs> My mind's gone completely yes. blank. That's, that's, that's strange. Of uh, all time. Yeah. I'll give you five DJ sets. They're in the book. Um, and uh, top ahead, don't hold me to this. Greg Wilson, 8810 Big Chill. Uh, that's the DJ set I send to all my rock friends. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what's on it. Uh, it's, oh, it's so great. Um, 
Terry Mullen, uh, New School Fusion Volume 2. Uh, Terry Mullen from 93 to 96 was the best house DJ in the world. Full stop. Um, I still love DB's uh, History of Our World Part 1, which Simon wrote the liner notes for. Uh, it's not like the most scintillatingly mixed collection, but it's, you know, the first four years of Breakbeat into Jungle. It's spectacular. Uh, Fatboy Slim on the floor at the boutique. Of just it, like if you don't like it, you're a Scrooge. <laughs> Jeff Mills uh, live at the Liquid Room Tokyo. Um, you, you want artists or tracks or? Uh, artists, yeah. I'll do art. I'll do artists and tracks. Um, uh, number one would be uh, Energy Flash. What's like I call my book Energy Flash after uh, this track by Joey Beltram. Uh, uh, number two would be Analog Bubble Bath by Aphex Twin. Uh, number three would be Ren- uh, Renegade Snares by uh, Omni Trio. The Foul Play VIP mix. Number four would be. Uh, um, oh, I don't know. Um, uh, some, a UK Garage track, maybe. Um, Gant, Sam- Soundboy, Burial. And I'm very conscious that all these choices are from the. Uh, from the 90s, so I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna say the last one will be uh, something else from the 90s. Um, uh, the, uh, the Prodigy Charlie, maybe. So, yeah, are they all British as well? Oh no. <laughs> I meant to say uh, that We Have Arrived by Mescalinum United, which is the mover, which is uh, a German guy, which is like the beginnings of... You write about that in your book, don't you? Yeah, yeah. The uh, beginnings of Gabba, basically. Yeah, that's that track. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, Lenny D told me about playing that track in, at the Love Parade and just 10,000 ha- arms going up at once. <laughs> like, he'd never seen anything like that before or since. And that's that's an amazing track. Yeah. Are we... Uh, Should we wind up? Or is... Okay. All right. Um, let's give them a round of applause. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.